Hello and welcome to Cannabis Grand Rounds, a production by physicians with advanced degrees in cannabis medicine. Your hosts, Dr. Lee Van Oker, Dr. Les Matthews, and Dr. Hal Altman, will offer unbiased medical cannabis education for healthcare providers and the motivated public. Our content is selected with the objective to fully explore cannabis as science and medicine and pledges to reflect current cannabis knowledge with no hidden agenda nor sponsorships. Hello again and welcome back to Cannabis Grand Rounds. My name is Les Matthews and I am here today with Dr. Hal Altman. Today we're going to begin a discussion of the endocannabinoid system. And I will tell the audience that when I began my uh, study and inquiry in cannabis and first read about the endocannabinoid system, I said, the endo what? I was not familiar with it. I had had no training in it and I had no understanding of it. And I think it's important to emphasize that that basic understanding of the endocannabinoid system is foundational to everything else we're going to talk about regarding cannabis and its uh, physiologic and medicinal properties. So to help me with this discussion today, again, I'm joined by Dr. Hal Altman. Hal is a pediatrician by training who also, again, has a master's degree in medical cannabis. And Hal, begin us uh, on a journey of how we learned about the endocannabinoid system and uh, the impact that the endocannabinoid system has on human physiology. Be happy to, Les. Uh, I'm uh, very excited to be able to talk about this because, uh, like your experience, I think that the discovering the existence of the endocannabinoid system did more to legitimize uh, the possibility of cannabis as a medicine than anything else that I had read about or certainly had studied. The timeline on the discovery is is relatively recent. There's about a 60-year period uh, in the late 20th century where we went from basically knowing nothing about cannabinoids to at least building the foundation for what we know now. So if I can walk through uh, some of the highlights of the 60 years or so between 1940 and and, uh, 2000, I think it will help us understand how we discovered this. And it's interesting, serendipitous discovery has been part of uh, science and certainly medical science from the beginning. You'll hear lots of people wonder why we're uh, spending money on esoteric research or sending a man to the moon, uh, what do we get from it? And it's sometimes the unanticipated discoveries that really pay dividends. So in 1940, there is a person whose name is Roger Adams, Dr. Roger Adams from the University of Illinois, who first discovered a cannabinoid. And I should say cannabinoids are related compounds. They're all pretty much related to THC and its precursors, and um, there are over a hundred of them we know now uh, in the cannabis plant. In 1940, the very first one, which was CBD, was discovered by Dr. Adams. Dr. Raphael McCullum, and anyone who knows anything about cannabis uh, recognizes Dr. McCullum's name. Uh, He is, uh, without a doubt, the most influential researcher uh, in cannabis history. In 1964, uh, he isolated THC. In 1988, the very first receptor site uh, 
four cannabinoids was discovered. And it was discovered through some rat studies and later confirmed to apply to humans. In fact, we've now found uh, the endocannabinoid system and its receptors in all vertebrates. So it's, it, obviously it was part of a very important evolutionary trend. CB1 is the name for the receptor that was discovered in 1988. And it is, interestingly, the most prevalent receptor in the brain. Let that sink in for a second. The most prevalent receptor in the brain. So something that's obviously of great importance. In 1992, Dr. McCullum and a team of researchers discovered the very first endogenous cannabinoid. Before we go on, we probably need to distinguish the difference among cannabinoids. Endogenous cannabinoids are endocannabinoids, and cannabinoids that are produced by plants, like cannabis, are called phytocannabinoids. So, Hal, let me, let me, let me stop you for a second. So, let me be clear for our audience. So, you're saying that the human brain has more receptors for cannabis than any other type of receptor. That's correct. That, that, that's that's mind-boggling, and and that also the human body produces uh, cannabinoids. Correct. The endocannabinoids are are part of this story. And so so without taking or ingesting or smoking or uh, in any way consuming uh, a cannabis product, the human body is a- adapted to and produces cannabinoids on a regular basis. The theory on this, Les, is that uh, the endocannabinoid system provides a homeostatic control. And so it's an overlay, if you will, of almost all of the organ systems and cellular systems that the body has. And when there's an imbalance, there it's detected through the endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoids themselves are put out to, to try to reestablish that balance. And we'll, we'll get into more of that as, as we talk about it. So in 1992, the very first cannabinoid receptor was discovered by Dr. McCullum. And then in 1993, a second cannabinoid receptor, CB2, was discovered as well. So if we have receptors endogenous receptors, then we probably have some kind of endogenous compound that's meant to interact with those receptors. And indeed, in 1997, um, uh, an endocannabinoid 2-AG, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, in more depth, was discovered. And then finally, uh, in the year 2000, was the first literature reference to the term endocannabinoid system. So that, that's sort of the discovery timeline uh, for the endocannabinoid system. And what I'd like to do, Les, if it's okay, is just circle back and maybe talk about uh, the specific components of the endocannabinoid system, those being the endocannabinoids themselves, the receptors, and then an enzyme system that's been discovered that helps to regulate the entire ECS. Yeah, I, I think this is a very important topic, and uh, you know, I, I still find it remarkable that our knowledge of this is only roughly twenty years old. You know, so so it's a worthy worthy topic for an in depth conversation. So, please take us through it, Hal. 
And I think the parallels with, let's just say, the opioid system. We, we know that we've got endogenous opioids uh, that help us with pain. The parallel with the endocannabinoid system, I think, is, is very compelling. Let's start with the endocannabinoids themselves. There are two, as I mentioned, and part of the reason that I hated biochemistry is because I struggled so much with pronunciation. So let me get these out of the way. And fortunately, uh, convention has us using names other than the scientific name. The very first to be discovered was ananamide. Ananamide, interestingly enough, in Sanskrit means bliss. So this was the the endocannabinoid that was isolated in the brain and is most closely connected to THC. Its scientific name is arachinodonyl ethanol amide, or AEA. So AEA and ananamide are the two uh, terms that, that are most used to describe this compound. The second is arachidonyl glycerol, and that is abbreviated 2-AG. Ananamide is uh, primarily found uh, in the central nervous system. It is a, an agonist, a weak agonist for CB1. And 2-AG is a weak agonist for um, the CB2 receptors that are found in the peripheral nervous system and in the immune system. And we'll get into more detail with that. So we've got two endogenous cannabinoids produced by the human body, each of which has an affinity for a different set of cannabinoid receptors. The receptors themselves uh, are, are termed CB1 and CB2. CB1, as we discussed, is the most abundant G-protein coupled receptor in the brain. G-coupled receptors describe the receptors that lie in the cellular membrane. If we remember from our biochemistry in medical school, the outside of the, um, the cell membrane is in an aqueous um, milieu and the inside is lipid so that the receptors uh, sort of have a hydrophilic and a lipophilic end. The CB1s, as we mentioned, are primarily found in the CNS. It's the receptor that is associated with the euphoria or the high that you typically see with the phytocannabinoids. CB2 is found in small amounts in the CNS, but it's mostly outside the CNS in the immunologic system. So the tissues like tonsils and the spleen and the thymus certainly white cells, and interestingly enough, the GI tract are, all have uh, CB2 receptors. We've got ananamide and 2-AG. Their effects are mediated through the receptors of CB1 and CB2. This system is one that is, because it's got a homeostatic overlay, there are not storage supplies of either of these endocannabinoids. They are basically created upon demand so that when the cell finds an imbalance, there's a production of the uh, appropriate endocannabinoid. And then to regulate that so as to not overshoot the action, there's an enzyme system 
and there's a specific enzyme that metabolizes and hydrolyzes AEA, and that is called fatty acid amide hydrolase. It is abbreviated FAAH and uh, is pronounced FA. And the enzyme for 2AG is monoacylglycerol lipase, and that is abbreviated MAGL or MAGL. And so those are the components of, of the system. The function of the system uh, in a very simplistic model of, of description is that those three pillars that we just discussed are meant to maintain uh, homeostasis. When there's an imbalance that is detected within a system, uh, the cells synthesize the endocannabinoids that interact with the appropriate receptors and stimulate a response that restores homeostasis. In most cases, that response is to trigger a secondary a neurotransmitter or some kind of transmitter that inhibits whatever the uh, imbalance is. And probably the easiest way to understand it is to, to describe what happens in severe pain. So let's suppose that there's an injury, someone has a, a fractured tibia, and there is a remarkable pain overload um, that's experienced in the CNS. And AEA, which is the endocannabinoid in the CNS, is produced in response to that imbalance. It produces an inhibitory neurotransmission that ultimately reduces pain, and uh, eventually homeostasis is, is preserved or restored. So that the easiest way to think about uh, the functions of the ECS is that it provides relaxation, a stimulus to eat, helps sleep, helps us to forget, and protects. And, and how that raises the question of whether there can be disease states that uh, alter or adversely affect those important regulatory functions of the ECS. Agree, Les. That's a very important point. There, there are a lot of researchers now that are speculating that chronic pain, possibly some of the chronic inflammatory diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, like rheumatoid arthritis, are the result of an alteration in the tone, if you will, of the endocannabinoid system. So for whatever reason, there aren't enough endocannabinoids and the interest with phytocannabinoids is to restore that balance by using something that's exogenous. And, and if, if you think about it, you know, we do it all the time in medicine. If someone's hypothyroid, their thyroid's not producing enough uh, hormone, we provide exogenous thyroid to supplement. And someone's pancreas is not producing enough insulin and they have diabetes, we provide exogenous insulin to bridge the gap. And so it just makes a lot of common sense that the endocannabinoid system may in certain disease states or, or certain pathologic conditions also require exogenous supplementation to restore balance and function. Fair enough? Fair enough. It, this is probably a good place to talk a little bit about uh, the phytocannabinoids and the difference between 
its agonist, their agonist activity at CB1 and CB2 versus the endocannabinoids. As, as we've so, established- so to, to, re, to reiterate for the audience, not to interrupt you, but to, the, the phytocannabinoids, that refers to cannabinoids that are derived from plants, correct? Correct, correct. So th- these, are, these are the, um, the various components of the cannabis plant that provide the source of these cannabinoids, these exogenous cannabinoids that we're going to talk about. And, and the, uh, the primary phytocannabinoid in terms of CB1 and CB2 activity is THC. THC is a, an agonist for CB1 and CB2, but it has a completely different chemical structure than the endocannabinoids. And because it's different, it has a different affinity for particularly CB1. It has a stronger affinity for CB1 than the AEA that we discussed. And that means that there's going to be more stimulation at CB1. Um, and that's that sort of extraordinary stimulation is what produces the, the euphoria or the high that you get with THC. The other issue with THC is that the enzyme systems that we described in ECS do not work against THC. So whereas AEA and 2AG are removed when it's appropriate by the uh, enzymatic messaging system, uh, there is no enzyme that, that pushes THC off the CB1 receptor site. And so it's a matter of time before that wears off. So, so the duration of effect um, may be significantly greater with an exogenous cannabinoid. The intensity and the duration of effect is, is generally greater with an exogenous cannabinoid. That's correct. It does lend itself, obviously, to medical intervention. And, you know, part of what we're struggling with right now, quite honestly, is related to the discussion that we had at the last podcast concerning legality and the the ability or the inability for us to be able to study THC and the other cannabinoids to see, first of all, you know, what quantity works, what mixture of the different cannabinoids works for what. There are anecdotal reports of people having remarkable success using one uh, type of chemotype, if you will, of cannabis uh, versus another. They run out of it and uh, the effect goes away. So it's not one size fits all by any means. And it's part of the reason that we need to get this drug rescheduled so that we can start to do legitimate clinical studies. Well, I think that's been a great discussion of a very important topic because, again, everything that we will uh, discuss moving forward as it pertains to the pharmacology and physiology and medical uses and potential benefits of medical cannabis will be based on this knowledge and understanding of the endocannabinoid system. So thank you, Hal. This has been a, a great start. We are going to continue this discussion in detail covering another wide variety of cannabis topics in future podcasts. Thank you again for joining us. One final thought. I always like to try to give our listeners some references in the event that they want to do a deeper dive, and there are two that I would suggest for the ECS. The first is a recent textbook, uh, really the, the first comprehensive textbook on medical cannabis called The Handbook of Cannabis 
for clinicians. It's done by Dr. Dustin Sulak, and it is um, uh, at times encyclopedic in terms of its uh, informational content. And I would certainly refer anybody who's interested to take a look at that. And the other uh, is a free magazine. It's Cannabis Rx. It's abbreviated CRX. There's a website, uh, and you can either access it via the website, or they will actually send you a paper copy of the magazine. It's a quarterly, and in the winter of 2020, uh, they did a very nice summary of the ECS. Great. Thank you for that. I hope the audience finds that useful. We'll sign off for this podcast and look forward to speaking to the audience again soon as we continue to delve into the education and all things cannabis. All information, material, and content on this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional and or medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment by a qualified physician or healthcare provider. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. Cannabis Grand Rounds LLC does not offer personal health or medical advice. If you have a medical emergency, call your doctor or call 911 immediately.